0: Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 250 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, Crowe with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com theinfectiousmyth. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Infectious Myth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can make a one time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com where we're also infectiousmyth one word. I'd like to thank new recurring donors, a new friend John Jasper, and special friend Robert Meeks. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests, I appreciate your financial support, especially in this difficult time when I'm spending a lot of time researching the coronavirus. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. Kevin Corbett has over 30 years experience in both clinical nursing and nursing teaching and healthcare research. He's worked as a clinical nurse in acute and primary care and forensic health services. He also worked on the first dedicated AIDS unit in the United Kingdom in the Middlesex Hospital, London, England, which was opened in 1987 by Princess Diana. He has a bachelor's degree in art from the University of Reading, a higher diploma in fine art from University College London, an MSc nursing from King's College London, and a PhD in social sciences from London South Bank University. He has a lot of contacts among active nurses, even though he is currently retired, and we've been spending a lot of time talking about the coronavirus. We've even written a short paper, Problems with Current UK Government Lockdown Policy Together, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Kevin also does art at kevinpcorbett.com. I'll put a link in the show notes, and you can contact him through that website. Welcome to the show, Kevin.
1: Thank you very much, David, for inviting me.
0: I think there's some parallels between... HIV, AIDS, and the current coronavirus crisis. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about your experiences back then, and particularly how your views on HIV changed over time as, as you actually worked in the, in the field.
1: The AIDS um, phenomenon blew up in the early 80s. And at the time I was a student nurse, I was studying to become a nurse, and I was working in um, a voluntary organization called Gay Switchboard, which was a telephone helpline for people who are gay, lesbian and transgender. So the the sort of AIDS thing hit the gay community first over here. And then as I was working uh, to qualify as an RN, it became quite a big issue in the mid eighties. And um, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of discrimination and there was a lot of prejudice. Those Mm. three things were being pumped out by the media all the time. And, you know, the, 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 the doctors, nurses and therapists who went to work in the whole field had to deal with these issues, you know, the fear, discrimination and prejudice. And um, I can remember the first time I met a patient that was HIV positive um, in the hospital I was working in. You know, it was like meeting somebody from Mars because the staff were in spacesuits. And the patient was on a trolley. And it just seems so overblown and so fear based, the whole approach, you know. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting on one level. You can see the same issues here with the coronavirus and, and HIV, or in the 80s it was called htlv 3 And this fear, you know, this fear based approach to, you know, am I going to catch it? is a natural uh, feeling, a natural thought that healthcare people have. Um, But the the issue is, you know, are we being mobilized through fear and prejudice? You know, this is the issue, I think. There were some
0: pretty outrageous claims made about HIV back then that it was going to Mm. break into the heterosexual community. It was going to kill millions of people. Mm. And it's pretty hard to say that, you know, public health interventions prevented that. There certainly was a lot of education on, on safe sex, but it's not like the world stopped having sex. And I think the heterosexual mm-hmm. community basically largely ignored the problem after uh, after a while because they basically didn't know anybody. If they didn't have gay friends, they just didn't know anybody who was HIV positive or, or had AIDS. And so it didn't have that. It, it lost that visceral fear that it, that it was there and, and lasted in the gay community much longer. For Understandable well,
1: reason, Yeah, so exactly. But there was this, you know, expectation that it would go through all the population. There's been a lot of stuff written on it from the social science uh, disciplines and the fueling of epidemic and the, you know, hoping in a way that it would gain traction within the wider population. As a, as a, as a healthcare person going into that field, you came up against a lot of prejudice and fear and also what's interesting in the early days i remember in the mid 80s you could not get these patients into intensive care unit somebody was hiv positive who had pneumocystis pneumonia Mm -hmm. pneumocystis lungs or something very very profoundly um you know fatal about the treatment paradigm that these patients were in and one was always coming up against these do not resuscitate orders, you know, that were put on patients. And it seemed very, you know, the whole paradigm was one about death and dying, you know, Kubler-Ross, stages of dying. And, you know, this was very, very much the terminal care model that was put into HIV to begin with. And because the notion was they've got a virus, it's destroying the immune system, they're going to die, you know a it's fatalism It's guided by a fatalism
0: the the media like movies and things you know the yeah. the gay guy with AIDS always died tragically
1: in the end and everybody cried yes it's the sort of rehash of you know the romantic tubercular death you know yeah and yeah. Um, it's you know like Philadelphia story and you know you've seen all these films but 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 the clinical reality was very different you know and a lot of Nurses were very much pushing for patients to be reviewed, get them seen, to get things treated, not to let things slide, you know, mm. put the line in. Uh, and I can remember once um, calling cardiac arrest team to a patient and resuscitating the patient and, you know, really pushing things so that, you know, people would get seen and um, getting to a bit of a trouble really about getting into a lot of trouble about this really you know about this terminal fatalism that guided the whole treatment paradigm and of course once they got the ARVs then it was you know a different story but you know in the 80s it was hard work getting these patients in intensive care unit or getting them actively treated it was quite difficult at times mm. you know and i remember being uh, loggerheads a lot with some medics, you know. And I remember one doctor throwing a book at me, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> at least
1: it wasn't a sharp you know, object. Is, well, it wasn't a sharp object, but you know, this tension, you know, the tension. Right. You know, everybody goes into healthcare. Everybody goes into healthcare as a nurse or a doctor or therapist to help. We have altruistic values, you know, we don't mm. want to do people harm. And you want to do the best for the patient, you know. And, of course, there comes a time when active treatment isn't appropriate. One also knows this. You know, there is a – but, but you know, really, uh, you know, I think in the 80s, it was very hard to have an active treatment modality with some of these patients because the the doctors had made their mind up, you know, well, you know, if they're not going to die now, they're going to die in a few months, you know. And it's very hard. It's very hard.
0: Mm.
1: i i mean one of the
0: things uh i found about the whole AIDS thing is is that if you looked into it a little bit, you started to see some con- contradictions like it was it was sexually transmitted, but prostitutes were never uh, a yeah. risk group unless they were um drug using um there was a big fear of occupational transmission, but I remember the last time the c d c published occupational transmission statistics. It was in, um, in, I think, 1997, and they'd managed, for the entire United States, they'd managed to um, cobble together 25 cases of which, you know, maybe three or four were, uh, you know, relatively, they were relatively sure that it was tra- um, actual transmission. And then amongst all of those, there were like no surgeons and no paramedics who are the people most likely to come in, in contact with uncontrolled blood uh right like it was it was yeah. kind of shocking and i, I remember finding an, an article that 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 said that in the united states every year there's something like a million accidents you know that involve blood you know like a uh a, mm-hmm. a, a nurse puts the hypodermic in the wrong place or a scalpel yeah. slips or something like that there's yeah. there's just yeah. innumerable uh, and i remember there was a paper from brazil of pu- plastic surgeons and when they actually looked at gloves after surgery, under you know, looked at them carefully. They were just full of holes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah But if yeah. you put gloves on, you felt okay. I'm I'm safe, even though it was it was obviously more of a placebo. Mm. But I mean, did you start to see some of those contradictions?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, with any disease category, any disease, there's lots of contradictions, and I think health, you know, doctors, nurses live in that whole gray area with contradictory science and you know somebody's got heart disease there's contradictions. so with the HIV AIDS um, patients I had I ended up becoming a nurse specialist and I had a lot of patients I had at one point I had you know I can't remember I was well over 100 and you know there were patients that were got really ill and died quickly and the others that just never progressed you know they were they, they had the sero-positive diagnosis, but they never got ill, mm-hmm. and their blood counts their blood counts were always good, and this was always an issue, you know, because healthcare people don't generally know a lot about the tests and the generations of tests, you know, because there's different generations of technologies, right. and the sensitivities and the specificities of the early generations of, say, the ELISA tests were different, you know, they changed, and always wondered whether, you know, they, they re-ran the tests, whether some of them wouldn't have tested positive, negative.
0: I, I kind of get that feeling that o- over time the t- tests became purer.
1: Yeah, and I had one patient who always stood in my mind, I mean, this was the early 90s and he said, you know, he said that he'd been diagnosed in the early 80s, so I, mean, I think he's about 83 or 84, so it must have been one of the first patients in the uk and he said so this is 1991 and he was saying to me you know obviously i can't tell you anything about the person because it's confidential but Mm. the the anecdote i can tell you i think it's educational that you know he was saying well he was told in the early 80s that he'd be dead in a year Mm -hmm. that's what the doctor told him and he said it's like nearly 10 years later he said and "and i've never been ill you know and i remember thinking oh that's really interesting and so he's talking to me about it and he's saying, well, you know, I was invalided out of my job. I was a teacher. I didn't uh, have a job at the end. They expected me to die. So I went on state benefits. And He said, now it's nearly 10 years later. And like, I'm in my late 30s. And, you know, I'm thinking, what have I been doing for 10 years? You know, and that was a really interesting story because, you know, you've got people who are diabetics, got people with heart disease. They don't just tell you a story like that you know it's quite a profound nugget of information that really and um, it's,
0: it's like being sent to jail you know was int-
1: for a crime you didn't commit for
0: 10 years yeah and you know you come out and you realize well, that, that you've lost 10 years of your life it's never coming back and you have yeah. this stigma like he's yeah. HIV positive so Having a relationship is that much more difficult. Just like if you come out of jail, you've got a criminal record and you can't get a job yeah. and nobody wants to know anything sure. about you.
1: But I mean, you know, you could see parallels with diabetes, you know, where people diagnose diabetes and they're able to manage it well mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. the type one with insulin or type two, they manage it with their diet and they never have any problems with it. Do you know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. But he, he was interesting, you know, th- these stories. And what was interesting was I. Uh, worked with lots of different doctors in the hiv field but also with doctors who had hiv patients who were the doctors weren't specialists they weren't hiv specialists uh one was a blood specialist a hematologist mm-hmm. and you know there's different slightly different emphases you know and that was interesting because the hematologist was interested in these uh non-progressors, but the HIV experts would just say, oh well, it's just a matter of time. You know, they've been lucky, you know, they've been lucky. But, you know, what's interesting is at that point I knew nothing about the tests. You know, really, I didn't mm. have any idea. You know, I, I, I was a specialist in the area in the sense of being able to apply the science to the the patient population. But you know how the science works, you know, my my whole understanding is very much like the car. You know, you go out in the morning, you drive the car, or well, we used to before COVID. But you know, you go out in the car every day. You know where the engine is. It's in under the bonnet, and you know it works when you put the the, car, the, the key in the, the ignition. Right. You can start it and stop it. That's about it's a black box. You know, it's a black box. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that that concept of the black box is a lot of how medicine works you know, we know the input and the output but we don't know what happens in between you know Yeah, and, and it's sometimes I remember, important you know, I remember, yeah and I, I started looking at this you know, thinking, well, you know I started looking at my caseload and thinking how many non-progressors have I got and that term was coming in in the 90s you know, mm-hmm. and I was thinking well, this is interesting, you know like, well, what are they doing to keep healthy you know and people weren't that interested in it really and um and I started then looking at you know I started I registered to do a, a doctorate in this whole area of HIV and patient empowerment self-empowerment and stuff mm-hmm. and I started I started looking at the science of it you know which I had not really you know it'd been a black box to me really and so I started unpacking The knowledge of the 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 biomedical knowledge of the tests and looking how they work and you know and and then looking at like any technology you know it's got you know it's got a a parameter within which there's uncertainties like all of science and I started shaping my doctorate into that whole area of what's called science and technology studies now or STS and looking at the way the tests work and the artifacts in in the testing and how pe- some people test multiply, you know, positive, the positive, negative or intermediate. Mm-hmm. You know, and things like this, really, I didn't have any clue, you know, because once you give a diagnosis to a patient, it's gone through all the verification in the lab or should have, you know, but to find actually there the were people that actually had intermediate test results. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, you know, like with a Western blot, HIV Western blot, what does it mean? To have an intermediate result, you know, and and um what does it mean with an ELISA if it's borderline or it needs to be rerun? You know? uh, so there's an interpretation, you know. The, the Western blot,
0: to me, is it's, is its own invalidation because if you have some of the unique HIV proteins and not all. That that means that those yeah. proteins aren't really always found in HIV. So what does well, that mean? Yeah. I, and then on on the other side, if you if they say that you're negative because you have only one or two proteins, then that means that those proteins mm. are not unique to HIV. If they can be found, if every protein found, if you just have one line on a Western blot, you you will be recorded as negative. That mm. means that every protein can occur outside HIV. And so they're not mm. unique to HIV. So if you think about the, the Western blot for a little while, you go like, how did they come up with the idea that that they had some unique thing called HIV? But with these complex algorithms, they are creating a black box because they, inside this box, there's three Elizas, and there's a Western blot, and there's a, a decision made yeah. on the history of the person. Are they gay? Are they promiscuous? Are they whatever, right? Have, do they inject drugs? You, yeah. you You put all this in the black box, and then it comes out as positive or negative. And only the people who understand the box know that there is no such thing as positive or negative.
1: Yes, and, you know, uh, what what has to happen is it's all about resemblances and what things look like um, biochemically. And the test, the data sheets do tell you this, the manufacturers know this, that, you know, these proteins that are supposed to be specific – are only specific up to a point they can look like and act like. And then the question is, are they really what they, they think they are? And at some point, there's a parameter with all this where somebody's got to call the cutoff, where somebody's got to say, well, look, you know, you're either above or below the cutoff for a positive or a negative, you know. So if you're above, you're a positive. If you're below, you're a negative. This is the same with all medical tests. You know, so there's no different with HIV to... Tests for something else, you like know. The coronavirus. The same. This is exactly, I mean, this is why at the moment, you know, they bought all these antibody tests from China and they don't work properly. So the government in the UK is stuck because, you know, it's been promising antibody tests to the population and they can't run them out because, you know, you get too many false readings, you get too many false positives, false negatives. H- how so, they ever you-
0: thought they could run tests on the entire British population that, that, that within a few months of, finding a new disease, they could have an antibody test so accurate that you could do 80 million tests and, <laughs> and not have thousands of false positive and
1: negatives. Well, I don't know. the thing is, David, that um, it took them years to do any of this calibration, as it's called, with the HIV tests, and there were several generations of tests. But what's happened in the UK you know, in the last 20 years is what's now called Public Health England, which used to be called the Public Health Laboratory Service, Has basically dwindled. You know, it's public health labs have been outsourced or they don't exist within the state system like they used to in the 80s and early 90s. You know, they've been, things have changed, you know, and and the state has contracted. So they don't have this chain of public health laboratories, uh, uh, public health laboratories like they used to do in the 80s with HIV. And in the 80s, you had people like Philip Mortimer. Who ran the public health laboratory service? Who was in- instrumental in doing this calibration with the HIV elisas And and you know, and he actually was so successful with that that he actually they actually threw out the Western blot in the UK in 1991 or 92, right. and they never used it. You know, so so for com- confirmatory algorithm with HIV, they used all the different ELISAs patterned into a different algorithm to the United States, called the alternative strategy. Mm. And um, it's very, it's just very interesting. You know, obviously, you know they believe that it's totally watertight and they, you know the, the reactions detect HIV. I'm not saying they're disbelievers in the science, but you know whether you agree with it or not. They were successful in developing a UK-based testing protocol and technology independent of the United States. Uh, and now we don't have that with the coronavirus because you know we're, we're reliant on buying it all in from God knows where. You know, does that make yeah, sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I want to go back to one thing you talked about earlier, which was was fear and. You know, there was a, a marketing plan to to try to persuade people it was a heterosexual problem. And, and this was not, I think, because they thought it was a heterosexual problem. But they felt that if they didn't make it a problem for everybody, there wouldn't be enough support yeah. for this disease for, for gay men. But, yes. I mean, the consequence mm. was they generated a lot of fear about sex in, yep. in both gay men, you know, more so, and to a lesser extent in heterosexuals because they were trying to achieve this goal uh especially charities like how are we going to raise a lot of money if we uh, don't make everybody f- afraid so that rich people will send us big checks
1: mm. well you know the whole the whole discipline of health promotion as it's called or health education you know it's a very very interesting area and um You know, so much money has been spent on health messages to the public and a lot of it's wasted. People don't, you know, I mean, the the whole approach with HIV and AIDS in the 80s about instilling fear in the population was counterproductive in the end. And, you know, they then had to target the messages to certain epidemiological groups uh, because, you know, it was just like, Throwing mud at the wall and hoping it sticks. People don't take these. Look at look at cigarette smoking. I mean, look at the cigarette packets. Look what's on them. You know, you've got diseased lungs on cigarette packets. Does that stop people doing it? No. I mean, people take risks. People take their own risks. You know. Yeah, I think uh, with
0: cigarettes, there's been a societal change. It's it's like there's been a big reduction in drunk driving. Yes. And I don't think yeah. that it's due to all of these health problems. It's just kind of in, become part of society that people are aware that if if somebody gets dropped down drunk at your house, you have some kind of responsibility whether it's, you know, legal or moral to um yeah. see if you can get that person home safely and if yeah. that means they have to leave their car at your place and take oh. a taxi, well that's that's what it will have to be. Things like designated drivers. And, you know, I, I guess the, the public uh, campaigns had had some impact, but it, it, it's like when it catches on in the population, then it, it really solidifies. That's certainly something that's happened with coronavirus. Like they have embedded mm. a fear, if we can sort of switch gears to the coronavirus, mm. they've embedded a fear deep inside people. I mean, people are really yeah. genuinely totally frightened about this invisible coronavirus.
1: And I think that, you know, you can question that, absolutely, because, you know, what you saw in the 80s with AIDS was this fear that was induced about bodily fluids, blood, semen, saliva, you know, and now we're in a different order with this, where, you know, it's pathologizing the everyday, you know, touching associating breathing um (laughs) breathing now there's a harvard (laughs) professor quoted the other day that breathing transmits the coronavirus well so (laughs) should everybody just stop breathing i mean for for a month we're gonna
0: stop for a month and that will fix it
1: when when you take the underlying logic to this and extrapolate it to to its logical end it is nazi-like yeah. And I'm afraid that is the only word I can think of because the zealotry with which this has to be taken to the utmost end point, you know, mm. is ridiculous. You know, So everybody's got to stay indoors for six months. That's the message we might be getting in a few weeks. Now, how impractical and stupid is that for an epidemiologist? You know, they should know better. Yeah, and and... these people—they have PhDs. They have PhDs. They're a lot cleverer than me, you know. And they're stupid. And the the message will just be ridiculous because, you know, look, you know, if we're all the transmitters of it, well, why not just gas us now? You know, let's just stop it now. You know, and you've got these ridiculous decisions that are being made now about CPR cardiopulmonary resuscitation right. is potentially aerosolizing a virus so we're not going to give anybody cpr i mean you know how nazi-like can that be i'm sorry you know um this this is going to breed public unrest and, and people and I need think, to wake up
0: right one of the big messages i have is that intubation um just just yesterday i got documents from the united kingdom and from australia new zealand that is you know government push to immediately intubate which is exactly what they did with sars they they did this in italy a lot uh not every patient of course but anybody who was like mm. had any oxygen problems and i mean the the paper from italy was quite i mean it was black humor it said you know, intubation protects uh, the staff from, uh, you know, aerosolization of the virus, but it can cause, and then they have this long list of things, including cardiac arrest in the person being intubated. So we have this situation what? where we're a so person that we're willing to risk their lives in order to protect the doctors and nurses, out of fear, and I think an irrational fear, that this disease is so contagious.
1: Well, that is exactly what we had in the '80s with AIDS. Mm-hmm. Look, when I was first qualified as an RN, I remember coming on shift one day and we were told, "Oh, we got our first HTLV three, possibly positive." Right. You know, and you know who'd go near him except me. I thought it was ridiculous. You know, he's not yes. from Mars, yes. and all the guy needed was. It was a young man who had a congenital bladder problem, which meant he needed intermittent um, catheterization of his bladder to, in order to void his, you know, to excrete urine. Because mm-hmm. he's retaining you know, he had a chronic urinary tract problem right. where he um, would retain urine. So he needed to pass a catheter every, regularly to, to void. Right, And so somebody had to teach him how to do that. You know, well, it's basic infection control. It's fundamental infection control principles. Whether you're HIV positive or you're hepatitis B positive, you know, basic infe- fundamental principles, essential principles right. of infection control should protect you. Now, with the coronavirus, how many years later, what they're worried about is they don't know what – they think they have this virus – they don't know what it is, they don't have a natural history of it. And so fear, that uncertainty has taken over the practice. So what you find is the medical practice, the nursing practice is going beyond the evidence base. Mm-hmm. So you've got Public Health England, which is our, you know, public health authority in the UK, saying that CPR does not it's not an aerosol generating practice. That's what mm-hmm. the evidence shows. That's right. what they've said in the BMJ this year, this week. But because people are frightened, they're frightened of aerosol transmission. There was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine. who showed that you know COVID in aerosol can live on surfaces, or it can be found on surfaces. This is worried people, you know. Right. So you always get this, you know. This is where healthcare practice, I'm afraid to say, at times is, you know goes beyond the evidence base because people extrapolate beyond the knowledge you know and this happened in aids look with touching aids patients you know mm. with princess diana princess diana opened the first aids ward in the uk i was on that unit we all met her she went around talking to patients kissing them on the cheek you know i mean you know she demystified this we need a Princess Diana for covid you know for god's sake you know i don't mean to be flippant here but you know to honest to god you know this is ridiculous you go to intubation on somebody who you know you could try with a non-invasive technique first surely they could sit them in an air, air an area that's got negative pressure or something there's ways of doing it you know mm. you need to think out of the box they're going to do this they're going to get NIV systems now they're talking about it yesterday non-invasive but, um, ventilation yeah yeah the are the, more closed circuit you see it's the closed circuit nature of intubation and ventilation that is the fail safe for them that they run mm-hmm. to do you know what i mean it's the safe room for oxygenating the lungs yeah
0: because but the it's
1: closed circuit
0: I I've, I think this advice is coming down from the top. You know, when the I think it's the Inca- Intensive Care yep. Society of England says you you should move to intubation. I can't remember their exact words, but basically you should move to intubation much faster than normal. If, if doctors and nurses don't agree with that, they're now swimming upstream, right? I listened to uh, oh yeah right a, a podcast of some doctors today who obviously were you know experienced in the way they were talking so casually about all the different things different methods of intubation and stuff they're obviously very experienced in this area and they're all saying we need to we need to reduce the amount of intubation that what we see is you rush to intubate somebody they look okay for a while and then they suddenly collapse and you have this high death rate and uh, yeah. uh, another point they made which I've talked to Dr. Faz Khan quite a bit And he said, it's really important if you're looking at somebody's oxygen level to also look at the person. If the person is comfortable, is breathing reasonably easily, is alert, then they do not have Mm. a severe oxygen problem. right? Maybe their oxygen is lower than it should be, but their body is managing this. And so you you don't want to intubate Mm. somebody based on the number. And I think that was also the same thing with HIV. It's like you looked at viral load and CD four counts, and you ignored the person. I mean, I'm not talking, I'm not using you in in the sense of Kevin Corbett, but yeah. you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it was different, and you know, you you couldn't intubate those patients very easily. Doctors wouldn't do it. Certainly in the UK, it was very hard to give them a trial of ventilation if they weren't responding to the To the pneumocystis treatment in those days, it was very often terminal care, palliative care. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this this is the opposite,
0: right? You know,
1: because of the volume, the numbers of presentations, and it's just you know we're we're not in a you know it's thirty years on, you know. So, but the issue is, any intervention, any medical intervention, has its own pros and cons, you know. So this notion that ventilation is the easy, the best thing to do, and it's an easy option. It's, you know, these these ITU intensive care physicians and experts will tell you, you know, that it's not an easy thing to, to, if you look at the audit that you mentioned, the intensive care society's audit, you know, the outcomes are not good, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, they're not that bad. Some that go through intensive care units. But, you know, what I'm saying, Saying is once you put somebody on a ventilator, you are breathing for them. You've got to do all sorts of things with the alveoli to make sure that you're not collapsing them too violently. You've got to do all sorts of things to make sure that you can actually get them off the ventilator. And the term that's used is weaning them off. You know, right? And and then while they're on the ventilator, there's all sorts of other Metabolic things that are happening around the body that you've got to watch, like the organ systems, you know.
0: Well, that's and if they're
1: septic as well, that's you know, what these doctors this, are
0: talking about. Is is you yeah, get you, know. you end up with organ organ failure because you've intubated, and it's like, well, this is right. not something you should jump into. Um, if you, it should be uh, as as Dr. Khan said, a last resort, and it's the first resort in in some cases, based on this advice coming down from on high.
1: Well, I think you know. That I'm sure you'll find that that will change because, you know, it's early days of this. And it, in a way, as you say, you use the word on the fly, I noticed it's quite a good term that because, you know, in a way, the expertise is being generated as we talk, you know, and you'll find that, you know, if you look at this in a few weeks or a few months later, hopefully things will move on a little bit. But I think, you know, where we are now with this fear that has been instilled in the population about sputum, about coughs, sneezing, you know, all these everyday activities have now taken on a different context. And I'm looking at this really sociologically, you know, so, so yep. the every day has become pathological, you know, so to touch somebody, you know, to um, cough in public. That putting your hand over your mouth, you know, you know, are these going to be potential attempted murder charges? R- right. You know, you know, how, how, how far does this go? Like, you know, having unprotected sex in the 80s became an attempted murder mm-hmm. because of HIV. Whereas, I- whereas before HIV, it was, you know, nobody ever thought twice. So certainly gay men would never use condoms in the early 80s I remember working in gay switchboard in the early 80s when HIV, HTLV3 was coming in and the concept was being pushed that gay men should use condoms and I remember these working groups in gay switchboard where we'd be discussing this because we had to you know telephone helpline so we'd have workshops training workshops for us to get up to speed on things and it was profound misgivings about this whole concept of using condoms which is a heterosexual notion you know that Gay men didn't even think about something like that because right. pregnancy was never an issue. And now it's the same thing about, you know, distancing, social isolation. Yes. You know, it's 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 that Isaac Asimov book, The Naked Sun, where there's this planet of humans that, you know, there's about twenty thousand on of them on the whole planet because they live in huge estates on their own. They never have contact physical human contact because it's disgusting to them because it's you know the notion of microbes and bacteria and viruses guides everything so everything's done on screens they live virtual lives they see each other on screens they don't touch they see each other on screens and what's interesting in the book you know they see each other on screens and they might be seeing each other naked without clothes you know from their own home they don't find that an abomination it's just the physical, physical presence in reality, you know, that's problematic. And we're we going to go to a society where we're going to have this artifact left after this. A there, there's day? a real
0: there's a real thread in society. Um, I noticed, you know, during the Me Too movement, there there were obviously some serious sexual predators. We've got the Harvey Weinbergs, people like that. But there were also people like Joe Biden, who, I'm not a fan of Joe Biden at all, but um, he had a tendency, he would, he would put his face on a, on a woman's hair, or he put his arms around her. He was pretty touchy-feely. But my feeling was, mm. okay, you know, maybe some women think this is creepy. Other women seem to like it, right? But mm. the point is that there is a, there's damage to children who grew up without touch. Right? So if, if we become so scared of touch, whether it's because we interpret all touch as sexual abuse or we interpret all touch as, yeah. as an infection, um, we're going to end up with children who are not as in tune with other people. Like I, I think touch is one of those things that's much more important. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure as a nurse that you've probably seen the power of touch, like when you hold the hand of somebody who's, who's yeah. dying or or very or hurting.
1: Yeah, I mean you know this this is why I find the whole what's underneath this at the moment, what's what's underneath it, the philosophy or epistemology of it, very, very suspicious to me and very I hate to say the word evil, but I'm gonna use it. Because <laughs> care, nursing care, health care, you know, touching people in a, a therapeutic context. And I don't mean like massage or whatever but that's one form of therapeutic touch Mm -hmm. but touching in a hospital where you're consoling somebody you know or you're um you're giving reassurance or you're giving assurance you know And so are we going to go towards a situation where that's not allowed or it's suspect?
0: I was in the car a few months ago when we could still drive places and I was driving out to the mountains and and I was having this conversation with a woman uh, Mm. beside me. And uh, she told this story that was very emotional and she started to cry. So I instinctively reached out and put my hand on her arm. Right now, I know yeah. I was taking a risk because is she the kind of woman who's going to interpret that as, as like a sexual approach? I mean, it was obvious I was only doing it because yeah. I felt that she was, she was like emotionally distraught, and she appreciated it. I could tell that she yeah. felt better because she had that touch. And and I, I, with the co- co- coronavirus patients, we've not only removed touch, but we've removed all their relatives. It, all their friends, like nobody can visit them. And so they are now well completely alone. This
1: is just, you know, David, I have to say that, you know, the, there have been some very good examples of, of care, as well as some very negative ones mm-hmm. with COVID. And the concept of people dying on their own in a hospital without their loved ones. Well, I just think that this is a, you know, an alarm bell. How can that be accommodated in the twenty-first century? It's absolutely incredible that that can be that that can be justified and legitimated on the basis of it's so infectious. When the government says it's not so infectious, it has low mortality in relative to other conditions. It's not even on the the UK government's list of a highly contagious infectious disease. And on that basis, we're denying people bedside access. Well, I. I think this needs to be you know looked at because that is you know removing not only support and emotional support and psychological support for somebody who's dying it's destroying people's bereavement trajectory right and it's it's removing public scrutiny of what's happening in hospitals, yeah right. I had a so friend
0: I, I, you might have known him, Robert Johnson from Hill Toronto, who died in two thousand three. In the middle of the SARS crisis, um, he told me, you know, once he had his terminal diagnosis, he still had a sense of humor, and he said, this is not an AIDS-defining cancer. He was HIV positive. So he wanted to make it clear that he was going down, but it wasn't because of HIV. But he was in the hospital in Toronto, Mm. which was the epicenter of the SARS crisis. Toronto was shut down like the entire world is now. And it was only in the last couple of days of his life when his parents and only his parents were allowed to visit him um and i just thought that was incredibly sad for him and for his parents mm. and his friends
1: and everybody well, else at least they could but they could visit i mean it wasn't very, yes very it wasn't long long
0: a- absolute day. prohibition but it's like he had to be dying until they figured okay this guy's just got a couple of days they were mm. no visitors, so his parents couldn't visit, and he had a lot of friends in Toronto, and they couldn't mm. visit even on his his dying day. So, you know, a lot of people didn't get to say goodbye.
1: Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that because you know, that's that's a very sad story to hear.
0: But we now have thousands all right, of all those all right cases.
1: What we exactly, exactly, and what we know about infectious disease, or what we think we know. And our knowledge of, you know, look at all the research on bereavement, death and dying. Mm. Oh, you know, you, you, you could fill hundreds of libraries with it. And what are we doing? Telling people, no, stay away. We'll phone you. Yeah, you know, I just think that this is something very, very wrong with that. And that needs to, ch- before I, you know, withdraw my judgment on the coronavirus, that needs to change. The, the, that needs to change for a start-up, The up you know, infectious... I've had personal experience of that in, the, in my my social family group. I've had experience of that already where people have been phoned up and have been told, of, you know, you can't visit, they're dying. And then they're told in another call that they're dead. I mean, that, what is that like? That's, you know, that's like people disappearing off the street. you know and ending up in a death camp or something. I'm sorry, but you know, it's, I'm not I don't mean to be um it's it's not here,
0: but... it's kind of like um, you know, the height of the cultural revolution or or the Stalin era where somebody would be taken and and you would probably be told um you can come and collect their body. They had an accident in the prison and um Y- you know their mm-hmm. their bodies available at this point and and of course they might have disappeared for 6 or 9 months you had no word from them but it, this is psychologically it's the same thing i mean it's not that the people doing this are like intentionally trying to traumatize but i think what they've done is they've elevated infectious risk risk amongst everything else they they've said infectious risk versus theories of dying well we take precedence yeah. infectious yeah. risk versus the economy We take precedence there is nothing right now that that takes precedence over infectious disease even if you could show that there's more people dying from suicide and drug abuse and alcohol abuse and domestic um, violence because of of the the lockdown even if you could prove there's more people dying that way they would still insist that this infectious epidemic because they have this fear that it could blow up and you know the whole world's population could die and and who could prove who can prove them wrong? You can't prove a negative. Like,
1: what would happen well,
0: if you did nothing?
1: Well, you know, you're right, because, you know, we, in the UK now, we've changed, the law has been changed. We've got the Coronavirus Act. Coroners' inquiries don't have to have a jury anymore if they're COVID deaths. The Secretary of State for Health can direct anybody to look after these patients. One physician only can certify somebody mentally ill. You know, these are profound changes that have come in very quickly. And they haven't been enacted in the public domain openly yet. But, you know, maybe they don't need to be because the public is being disciplined. The public is aware and the public is being told to stay at home. The public's being told to, to forget about their businesses or their op- occupations. Things are sliding. We're week three of this. You know, it's very early. If this goes on for longer, people are not going to take this, you know, just because they don't take the fear based messages about smoking. They take them up to a limit and then they make their own mind up to apply the philosophy and epidemiological tenets, the tenets, the the axioms of epidemiology to the nth degree in a population is, I'm afraid to say, Nazi like because It's only, you know, everybody has to do it. And you've got to ensure that everybody does it over a certain parameter. And that's impossible to do without a police state.
0: Right. Unless and I, we
1: become the police. Right.
0: And what I'm scared of is that, that this is clearly not going to work. And then they're going to blame it on the people who, who went out for a run in the middle of the day when they weren't supposed to. Or that went exactly. out to, uh, you know, uh, a wilderness park. And went hiking by themselves with nobody around them. Um uh, this weekend I went to a provincial park, and the national and provincial parks in Canada have banned all vehicular traffic, even though the parks themselves are open, which is, you know, I don't understand how this helps. So we we go to this park, which is actually inside the city, and there's there's a little parking lot there, and it's all locked with with yeah. you know chains and everything. So everybody's parking on the side of the road, so people are still going to the park, they're still walking, they're still coming, you know, and some of the trails are narrow, they're still coming in with a foot or two of each other, but the provincial parks people can say, well, you know, we we showed those people, Uh, now the world's gonna be a better place because they're not parking their car in the parking lot, they're parking it on the street. It's just insanity multiplied a million times. That's, That's probably the most trivial example But what's interesting about it is just how silly it is.
1: Well, it is. But, I mean, this is how these things take root within a population. I mean, you know, people always say, oh, well, you know, Hitler was, you know, he took power and all the rest of it. And actually it was popular support for Hitler Mm. in the 30s. These philosophies that are evil embed in populations, in the national psyche, and at the moment, you've got this huge attempt to embed these notions of pathology around coughing, sneezing, you know, earache, sore throats. You know, the list is just getting longer and longer and longer. Just like with AIDS, you know, where we... anybody was any exactly with any basic medical education, the differential diagnosis should be enormous when you present at an ER an A&E or, as you say, in, in in Canada, an emergency room with a sore throat or a runny nose. It could be a whole different host of things. Mm. But no, it's going to be... First thing on the list is going to be COVID. Right. And, you know, why? You know, that's crazy. I mean, it's not scientific for a startup, and it doesn't make any clinical sense. And it's fear-based, you know? Yes. When is... When is a sore throat just a sore throat? When is when is a cough just clearing your you know a cough is to clear your airways, not always a pathological sign of infection. You know this is what, you know this is what gets me. We all live in environments that I mean I live in central London. We live in central London. You know the, one of the worst atmospheres in the UK. If you look at the pollution levels, mm-hmm. why is that not an issue when you got a cough? Right, you know? right. Why is it always COVID? It's just that this doesn't make sense. You know, right. The differentials being narrowed right down um, for a particular political purpose.
0: We've been talking uh, and
1: for quite a while. Yeah. So
0: I, um, I would just like to give you an opportunity to wrap things up um,
1: before we run out of time. I hope I haven't come over too emotional or too passionate. I do sometimes get very passionate about things. But I'm thinking rationally about this, that, you know, we we, I think the government's dug itself into a big hole here Mm -hmm. with the epidemiological models of imperial college. Oh, my God. We didn't talk about that, but yeah, that's... Mitigation and the RO. Now, those are three concepts, you know, mitigation, the RO, and flattening the curve. They're really interesting epidemiological principles were taken to the nth degree. I would say you could track them into you know a form of Nazi medicine if you wanted to quite easily because you know because of what they are what they imply you need to do but to wrap it up I think you know we've dug ourselves into a hole with this the economy will tank it's tanking a bit at the moment if they leave it another couple of months like this we'll be sunk yeah it's going to be a lot of of um, you know
0: England had a lot of <clears throat> problems with homeless people already—you um, know, people living sub-poverty line—and and this is going to push a lot more people. People who are kind of precarious but getting by, if they yeah. can't go back to the job they had before, uh, or yeah. if they end up going back to the job, but they're now stacked with debt because it turns
1: yeah. out they have to pay their back well, rent or something. and exactly. it's going to be horrible. Yeah. Well, my question, David, at the end of this is: Will this create, you know, like the AIDS phenomenon? The HIV phenomenon in the 80s and 90s created AIDS dissidents, right? Now, this is like AIDS, but everybody's the risk group. The whole population is the risk group. So theoretically, it should create enormous dissent. There's a lot of
0: people out there for sure. But, I mean, the the question is, are we talking about 0.1% of the population? I mean, I get a lot of emails, but, you know, I might get a few hundred emails. There's billions of people in the world, you know, are... Are ninety percent of the people in the world going to be willing to go along, just like you said with the Nazis? You know, go along with the Nazis as long as they're promising you yeah. the shiny. You know, we're gonna the state, yeah. you know, Deutschland über alles. We're we're gonna take over the world, yeah. and you're all gonna be rich and well, stuff like that. We'll, they put up with we'll, a lot, and we'll then see. it was all a big lie.
1: I, mean, I don't know. We have to see. Look, what do what do the anarcho primitivists think? Like people like John Zerzan. Where are they on this? I don't know. I've not read enough recently. Well, I think you know, it's
0: one of those places where you actually have to know the science before you can actually see the size of the catastrophe. Like if you if you believe it's a virus because people are telling you a virus, you've you've already started 10 steps behind because you've accepted something you have not evaluated. So people who are not scientists, there might be great philosophers or great doctors, but if they start from the point of accepting some of the fundamental mm. principles of the coronavirus pandemic then they
1: it's hard for them to catch up and, and just see how well, big I this think,
0: catastrophe is
1: yes i totally agree and to end to wrap it up that's where i'd leave it people need to think about what they're being asked to accommodate and how rational you know leaving people to die on their own not having contact with loved ones not associating socially. These are fundamental human organising axioms of society that mm-hmm. really, you know, you're being asked not to do these for a long time or forever. Then, you know, there's something very wrong with the science. The yes. science proposing this. And that's what people need to think about. They don't need to know... I don't think they need to become a virologist to criticise this. They can do it in their own everyday life. What they're being asked to give up is so fundamental. Will we now be not able to think? You know, the government saying they own our bodies, they can dispose of us. Mm -hmm. They govern us. Well, you know, I'm not sure that that's right, you know. We need to take back control. People need to take back control. They've done it with AIDS. People took back control control of their health and, you know, they negotiated their use of orthodox medicine. They didn't swallow it wholesale. Now with this, people need to take control because otherwise it's going to be taken off you. Right. That's probably what I leave it.
0: Thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, David. Bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Time for a tiny amount of feedback. Clifford on Facebook. Thank you so much, David, or whomever, whomever you are. I love your show. Yeah, I'm David. Nicholas via email. Thanks again for your amazing work. Brandon from Tulsa via email. I just stumbled onto your works just saying hello. I'm a new listener on an Apple podcast on iTunes, or whatever it is. Thanks for asking questions despite the backlash. Deb via email. I bumped into your ironic coat quotes, shoddy science work just one week ago. Your writing and your podcasts have made this coronavirus debacle so much easier to deal with since then, and I'm happy to support you. It's inspiring to see another human persevere with an unpopular viewpoint over the decades in the face of ridicule and more, and I thank you for your time, energy, and resolve. Marco, email, I'm a 25-year-old psychologist from Argentina. I want to thank you for your website. Thank you for listening to episode 250 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow@theinfectiousmyth.com. at theinfectiousmyth.com, like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Infectious Myth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to Infectious Myth on patreon.com or liberapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye.